You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, Mysteries. Friday. All month, my office chair had been sinking of its own accord. Every time I'd sit in it, it would slowly descend until I'd be about four inches from the floor. Maintenance would come by to try and fix the problem, but they just couldn't seem to figure out what was going on. In my heart, I feared I knew something that maintenance did not. The chair was a magical chair that responded to emotional heaviness, and confronted with 400 pounds of worry and 300 pounds of stress, it simply didn't stand a chance. But then a couple of days ago, I came into work and found my chair gone. At first I thought the janitorial crew had taken it down to their chair laboratories to perform experiments on it. But after a call down to maintenance, I discovered it wasn't there. What a mystery. Not one to kick up a fuss and certain it would be returned sooner or later, I just continued to go about my work, without a chair. I did so while standing at my desk, alternating between hovering and leaning. I've always been a good leaner, but at one point, growing weary, I tried piling up a stack of my Harper's magazines to create a makeshift seat, which kept cascading to the ground. And then today, finally, just as I was beginning to consider going down to the cafeteria to look for milk crates to stack, my seat was returned to me. I decide to call up Gregor, who's been avidly following the progress of the case, to tell him I finally figured out the mystery of where my chair went. I didn't know there was a mystery, but congratulations. No, I told you. I told you that that's the thing. That's why I'm so glad that I figured the whole thing out. I, 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 don't, under, I don't even understand what you're saying. Are you telling me that you stood at your desk for two days before you finally worked up the courage to walk out and say, uh, excuse me, has anyone seen my chair? I, well, that would have been beneath my dignity beneath your dignity. It's not beneath your dignity to be standing at your desk. Everyone's walking by saying, hey, who's the newbie standing up at his desk with his legs wobbling? All right, anyway, can I tell you what happened to it? Wait, wait, let me guess. Someone took it. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't mean to kill your story. I can hardly wait to hear what happened to it. Well, now it doesn't seem like much of a story, but someone, one of the technicians, I was walking by the studio, and he was using it as an ottoman. He had his feet propped up on it. We, we just ended up laughing about it, and, I mean, he was, you know, he was really nice about it. And nice about what? Stealing your chair? I think nice would have been not stealing your chair, but let's just come back to the forensics. Mm-hmm. Like, what was the initial hypothesis? I didn't have one. I mean, I, I figured, you know, it was misplaced, and it would turn up. Did it occur to you to try and deduce who might have taken your chair? What, what Did you, you have to see surveillance footage from the video cameras? Did you question anyone around? Look, I, I... Did you somehow think if you stood there long enough, your chair would roll back in? I presume the floors are pretty level at the CBC. I was working on it. I was keeping my you nose... You don't have to... deductive skills. Like, my ability to reason is far superior to yours. You know, I have abilities to reason, Gregor. I mean, it wasn't... I want to give you a little test. What do you mean? I'm going to give you a little simple test of your ability to do deductive reasoning, and you come back with the answer, okay? Yeah. This is what I call... A one-minute mystery. You remember two-minute mysteries from when we were kids? You mean those, like, little mysteries where, like, someone dies and then you have to try to figure out what the cause of death was or something like that? It's basically just a riddle. So you've got to pay attention to what I say because the clue is going to be built into the story, okay? Okay. So pay attention. All right. Okay, this one is called 53 Bicycles in a Room. Uh-huh. There are 53 bicycles and four men in a room. Mm-hmm. One man gets shot in the superior vena cava. Why? 
okay. Uh, well, okay. First of all, how how big is the room? How big is the room? What does that got to do with anything? Well, no. I mean, I you know, it could be germane. Germane. Where do you come up with these words, germane? Okay. All right. The germane. Okay. What what what's the vena cava? It's what he got shot in. It doesn't matter. Well, if it, I give you the fact wait, wait, and it, you solve the crime, you don't play twenty questions with me. If it doesn't, what's the vena cava? It's germane. Well, if it doesn't matter, then why why would you mention in the first place? When you go into Quantico, Virginia, to FBI headquarters, and they hand you the big Manila folder, you don't start asking a million questions about the font they used and how come it's on yellow paper. You get the facts of the case and you sit down and you solve the crime. All right, you give up. No, wait a second. I haven't given up. Yeah, no, I tell you when you give up. You were born giving up. You were born with your hands up in the air saying, "I give up." You want to know what the solution is? It's a bicycle yeah. is a brand name of playing cards. There are 52 cards in the deck. The men were playing poker. A man had an extra card. He was cheating. He had an ace up his sleeve, and some other guy shot him. It doesn't matter if he hung him or stabbed him or shot him or where he shot him or what vein. Okay, well, hang on a second. If you had said 52 cards in a room, that I would get. Do you know what a riddle is? Yes, I... I said some men are playing cards, and one is cheating, and he hit a card up his sleeve, and another man shot him. Why did he shoot him? That's not a riddle. That's just a story. All right, but okay. case of the bicycles unsolved by you. Case number two, Inspector Goldstein. Mm -hmm. Now, let me tell you something. The buzz around the office here is that you got promoted too soon, and you were looking at a sad sack demotion. I hope you are conversant with parking regulations, because you're going to be riding around in a meter maid van the rest of your career if you don't get this one. All right. Here we go. You ready? Yeah. I now present the case of Goldie. Mm -hmm. A vintner, Sam, comes home to find broken glass and water all over his living room. Goldie's suffocating on the floor. What's going on? Uh, someone hit Goldie over the head with an empty bottle of Cuddy Sark, and it shattered, and there was glass wrong, all over the... Wrong, wrong, wrong. The solution is that Goldie is a goldfish. Sam's a cat. Sam knocked the goldfish bowl over and broke it. You get it? It's a cat. How could a cat be a vintner? You don't even know what a vintner is. Wait, I think you don't even know what a vintner is. Case of the goldfish closed. We're on to case number three. So far, you are zero for two. Mm -hmm. All right, this is the most important case of your career. I'm giving you a murder. Homicide. The, the other two cases were murders. There's an obstetrician laying dead in a field with a package near him that says Thunderbolt E-Series and some cannoli. How did he die? Wait a second. So is this like another one of those tricks where the cannelloni has nothing to do with it? Who said anything about cannelloni? I, I said cannoli, which is a pastry, an Italian pastry. It's a clue in a crime scene. Can't you hear the difference between a cannoli and a cannellini I, and cannellini beans? Well, I Could you get the wax out of your ears and pay attention? When I'm trying to describe a crime scene to you, this is serious business, Private. A man is lying dead on the ground. I thought I was an inspector. You know, if I were you, I would drop the attitude, son, and come to work awake and ready to solve crime. Because you are not long for this department. Oh? Don't say, oh, address me I... as lieutenant, and you take some of that bass out of your voice. Solve it. Go. All right, so what was it again? So he's found dead in a field. Um... Quit stalling. You only have a minute to solve a minute-long mystery, and you just burned up 45 seconds with nonsense. Uh, okay, I, I, I have no idea. What is wrong with you? I, look, You're I... the guy who discovers the victim too late. Hey, you know that case we were working on yesterday where they said they're going to kill the kid if we don't get there fast enough? You don't figure it out in time for the commercial break. Look, okay. The solution to this crime was that the package was a parachute. The obstetrician was a skydiver, and his chute didn't open, and he had a cannoli before the jump. Not a cannellini, a cannoli. All right, let's move on. Okay, next case, genius. Let's see if you can solve this one. I, I can't solve these. I know you I... couldn't even solve the case of the missing chair. Here we go. It's called the case of the corkscrew. 
Mm-hmm. A butter and egg man comes to his shop. A butter and egg man? Opening the shutters, he looks up, and he sees a three-legged horse pulling a cart with 45 pumpkins, a lead box lined with three doves inside, Rickard, and an unsavory what? midget in a military dress who's being forced to play the violin. Is this going anyplace? There's a pressurized tank behind the cash register. I, I... Normally, the butter and egg man would keep it filled with propane. Only the village has been under siege, so no propane is available. I, I don't get it. Well, what, what is the riddle? You know what's a riddle? Here's what's a riddle. How could a guy be sitting on a chair when someone wheels it out from underneath him and he doesn't even notice for two days? I for two days, you. he sits out in the cold. That's a riddle I can't solve. And I'm the greatest inspector in all of France. Okay. I can't solve the mystery, which is what is wrong with you. Hello. What's the matter with you? What kind of a human being are okay, you? You're, you're hysterical. Monday. Josh calls up, livid. Why haven't you emailed me back yet, he asks. As is often the case, I have no idea what he's talking about. When I ask him to explain, he commands me to check my email. This is because he is making a point. So I check my inbox. No emails from Josh. Then I look in my junk mail folder and see three of his emails all in a row. The first subject heading reads, Answer! Exclamation mark. The second, Answer me now! Two exclamation marks. The third, all in capitals, Answer me, jackass! With three exclamation marks. I tell Josh that I found his emails in my trash folder, and he is indignant. How dare you, he yells. Josh sees his emails ending up in my trash folder as a hostile gesture on my part. Although I have no control over what goes in there, we argue over my supposed hostility with surprising intensity. Finally, he tells me why he was writing in the first place. I just wanted to see if you wanted to get McRibs at McDonald's, he says. Though I've never eaten one, the McRib is a sandwich that has fascinated me for years. For one thing, there's the mystery at the center of its existence. If it's popular, why not keep it on the regular McDonald's menu? And if it isn't, why keep bringing it back every few years? Either people want it or they don't. On the drive there, Josh explains his theory. The McRib is fleeting, but unlike the morning dew, its ephemerality is meant to stir anxiety in the hearts of men. One knows that any day one might walk into McDonald's and the McRib will no longer be there, so one feels the need to seize the day before it is driven back into oblivion. It's like the McDonald's green shamrock shake, but without the stabilizing tie-in of a St. Patrick's Day. Maybe the McRib could be tied into National Heart Disease Awareness Week, I say. Another point of fascination is that the McRib is composed of meat that's been shaped into the form of rib bones. The McRib is probably the most postmodern item on the McDonald's menu, in terms of its use of self-guise as disguise. I share with Josh my theory about disguise. I'll tell you who likes McRibs, he says. Disguy. We finally arrive at McDonald's, but at the counter, the cashier tells us that they stopped serving the McRib a day earlier. If only you wrote me back right away, 
Josh says, sadly. We are both a little crushed. On our way to Chinatown for dumplings, we cheer our spirits by arguing, intensely enough to make passers-by stop and stare. Wednesday. Josh has recently begun blocking his number so that it doesn't display when he makes phone calls. This newfound anonymity encourages him to call up and insult me in fake voices. Today I pick up to find Donald Duck on the other end. You're a bigger egomaniac than Mickey, Donald says. And let me tell you, Mickey wasn't an easy mouse to work with. Oscar Wilde wrote that if you ask a man to speak honestly, he will lie but give him a mask to hide behind, and he will speak the truth. As I listen to my life being torn apart by a cartoon duck, I am left uncertain as to what exactly the truth, ontologically speaking, is. You flunked out of college because you're stupid. This train of thought is interrupted by Josh, who's dropped the Donald Duck voice for Tickle Me Elmo, who is now insulting my hygiene. Hey, John, you know it's standard uh, operating procedure for a mature human being to take a shower more than once a month. All right, okay. You killed a hobo with your car and drove away. I saw you. Josh, I... You flunked out of elementary school because you don't know your shapes. Is this why you phoned me to insult me in different voices? What are you calling about? Your mom. (laughs) It it is remarkable, though, how high you can get your voice, I must say. That is a marvel. What does that mean, how high I get my voice? listen to your voice. What's wrong with my voice? I didn't say there's anything wrong with your voice. It's very feminine. You know what? It's actually been something that's plagued me my whole life. It, it, Honestly, John, I've been mistaken for a woman on the phone like 30 times recently, and it's happened to me my whole life. While, while talking in, in that voice? No, you're the only one I call up and mock in that manner. You're, you're talking about your regular voice. My regular voice. I'm talking to you right now. This is my regular voice. Well, you sound a little womanly. No, I don't. You sound a little bosomy. No, I don't. Well, they still think I'm a woman even when I give them my name. What's that about? Who's they? You know, whoever, operators. I, I tried to book a rental car the other day. She keeps calling me ma'am, even after I gave her my name and my visa number and everything. Joshua? That's correct. Well, I mean, that, that's sort of a, a woman's name. You know what? Go tell it to the Bible, okay? Go tell it to the walls of Jericho. Look, I'm not saying I'm the most masculine guy in the world. No, that's for sure. No, and not even saying that having a low bass voice or whatnot is, is, is in any way valuable or meaningful. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it just makes things... I like to be... I'm me, and I like to be respected for who I am. And, you know, I'm sure a woman wouldn't like to be mistaken for a man on the telephone. Would you prefer to be mistaken for a woman in person? No. No, I wouldn't. Unless I was wearing women's clothing, which is an entirely different subject. Let me, John, let me tell you a story. You tell me how you'd react in this situation, okay? okay. One time, I was in uh, uh, New York City, and I was uh, walking down Broadway, and I saw a delivery guy on his bike, and he had, you know, I think a pizza mounted on the handlebars, and he was, he was you know, cycling the wrong way down Broadway at a, at a high pace, and he hit a bump, and he flipped over his handlebars and went face first into the pavement, okay? Now, I saw this, and being the good Samaritan that I am, I immediately ran into the nearest liquor store, and I called 911. And I was, you know, I was agitated because the guy was bleeding out there. So I was hurried. I was, you know, not restrained. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the operator just said, okay, ma'am, calm down, ma'am. Tell us what happened, ma'am. Where's the accident, ma'am? What's, what's going on? And I was just like, look, I'm not a woman. And she didn't listen, right? Because she's in, you know, what are the details? Where's the guy who injured himself? That sort of thing. She wasn't interested in what I was telling her, mm-hmm. which is my identity. But you know what? I'm not going to be disrespected like that. So I just hung up. You didn't hang up no, on her. No, I didn't hang up on her, obviously. It was more important to stay on the line. 
And I was hurt, too, because she sounded attractive, and I was going to ask her out on a date, but I wasn't sure. Wait a second. You were going to ask a 911 operator out on a date yeah. while a man was, you know, bleeding to death outside. I actually just threw a little bit more bass in my voice. But eventually, I think I got so subsonic that she couldn't understand. I was, I was one of those tube and throat singers. I'm at the accident. She couldn't understand what I was saying. So you, you don't like being thought of as a woman on the phone, yet you call me up sounding like Minnie Ripperton. Uh, I, I, look, it's not that I don't like it. It's that, look, we, everybody has things about themselves they don't like, right? You probably look in the mirror and think, ugh, mm-hmm. right? You want to change it, right? right. Me? I mean, I, I, I just need to embrace it, like Smokey Robinson or Prince or the, or the construction worker from the village people. Mm-hmm. Or, alternately, I could just go around talking like this, you know, which is actually the uh, preferred methodology of many a CBC radio host. Coming up next on CBC Radio is something really boring just for you. Okay, all right. So now, to what do I owe the pleasure of this call? Look, I found a place that's serving McRibs in Ontario. Do you want to go? Y- are you kidding me? I never kid when I use this voice. Just a McRib, ma'am. They're opening up a McDonald's in a strip mall in Oshawa. To honor the occasion, they're serving McRibs. Over here, so we can drive down there. Josh, I am not driving down to Oshawa. Why? You see, this is why everyone on the internet says that you're quote a hater unquote. I'm not. Who says that? You know, everyone on the World of Warcraft forums. I'm not going to Oshawa to eat McRibs. Well, where are you going to eat your McRibs then? I don't there ain't anything around McRibs. here. See, that's where you're wrong. Just think of it as the world's largest drive-through. We drive down there six hours to get our McRibs. Just, it's a long line. Hello. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Howard. What's going on? Listen, listen, listen. I got a new one for you. Listen. Friday. Listen, just listen, just listen. Lately, Howard's been writing riddles and jokes. Okay, an elephant and a rabbit are flying an airplane. I'd always thought that such a vocation was strictly reserved for prison inmates and asylum dwellers. Now, the stewardess is a rhinoceros. Apparently not. Okay, so you have a raccoon. Most of the jokes Howard comes up with involve bears and forest rangers, penguins and bars, and chickens. He decides to favor me with one of his new pearls. A chicken is trying to cross the road, Howard says. Cars are swerving all around him, honking their horns. Get out of the way, you stupid chicken, they scream. Finally, the poor chicken, having had enough, stops in the middle of the road, looks into the sky and says, Why am I doing this? Howard pauses a beat and then adds, It's funny because it's true. Having to inform someone that the joke you've just told them is funny is the lowest form of comedy. And just as I think the comedy elevator has hit the basement, I realize there's a sub-basement, as Howard utters the words, Knock, knock. Saturday. Howard is over at my place. We are eating candy when he drops a malted milk ball on the living room floor. We watch it slowly roll out the door and into the kitchen. The good thing about having an apartment that's tilted is that when you drop round candy, it always rolls to the same corner of your home. I assume that by the end of the month, I will end up with a nice little corner stash. Howard is in good spirits. He's just won a contest to go to a Star Trek convention in London, England for four days, and he's leaving tomorrow. How did he win this vacation? by finding a winning chocolate bar wrapper. I've been eating chocolate bars my whole life, he says, and nothing ever came of it. And now this. Well, I say, it's nice to see all of your hard work finally beginning to pay off. Hello? Yes, Jonathan Goldstein, please. 
Hey, Howard. Hello, sir. Friday. Howard's back from London. Everything, says Howard, was absolutely brilliant. Brilliant, I ask? Quite, he says. It all went swimmingly. You'd think that winning a competition such as I have, you'd end up in maybe a second-rate hotel, but this was not the case at all, Jonathan. Uh -huh. It was brilliant, just divine, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> you, you, you've acquired a bit of an accent there. I, I know not of what you speak, but the loo was a place out of my dreams. <laughs> I Honestly, Jonathan, it's... Okay, oh. all right, could you please, with the accent, I don't want to hear about the trip. I'm um, trying to tell you my trip, I don't know why you keep... You talking about? Okay, enough already. Enough of what? You just I'm stop with the I'm with the fake British accent. I'm speaking the way in the manner of which I've always talked my entire life. You, I'm I'm perplexed at where the. Wait a second. You were in London, England, yes. for four days. Yes. For the Star Trek convention. Yes, in merry old England, which I which was fantastic. Jonathan, the tea there. Okay, the hang on a second, tea. Howard. Howard. Yes. You're not putting me on. You're obsessed. Howard, I, mean, I, I, I can't take you seriously talking in this ridiculous accent. I'm talking to you in the manner in which I've always talked to my you've entire not, life. You've I've known you since the age of five years old, Jonathan. We were in boarding school together, Jonathan. We, I never went to boarding school, Howard, and neither did you. Jonathan, I have known you since you were yay high walking around in short pants. We were in boarding school together. Okay, so you've acquired an accent. I've British, acquired no accent. Not only accent, that, but all the top. affect of a moneyed... British aristocrat. I have no idea what you're talking about. No, you have about. no idea what I'm talking really, about. Really, I'm at a loss. Mm -hmm. Were I not a gentleman, Jonathan, I might invite you out back and thrash you about the face and neck, but I am just... Okay, Howard, you don't, you don't feel as though maybe you're speaking a little differently than the way you spoke before you left? Well, I must admit, perhaps my, my time immersed in the culture mm -hmm. has affected my accent a bit, but nothing worth comment. The culture of Star Trek conventioneering. Yes, I'm sure there, was, there were many a lord and a duke there in attendance. You see, for people here in, say, North America, if they were referring to the Klingon Kerpla, they would say Kerpla, which really is not... Why? Wow, you, do, you do a Canadian accent so well. Can you do I, that again? Well, uh, Kerpla. It takes a bit of an effort. Right. You see, in England, it's Kerpla. This is in line more with the intellectual class of the Klingon. But for the most part, Jonathan, I just had a fantastic time. We traveled a bit. We Who's we? Well, myself, actually. Uh -huh. Howard, I, I suggest maybe you loosen that ascot around your throat because I think it's cutting off the circulation of blood to your brain. How did you know I was wearing an ascot? When did you acquire an ascot? I've, I've fashioned my own out of a sock. I am a size 13 foot. I've found that the weather here disagrees with me terribly, and it warms my throat, and frankly, I, I feel quite naked without it. Mm -hmm. All this joy and merriment aside, Jonathan, the reason I'm calling is I thought perhaps you'd like to come over for afternoon tea. Oh. We can watch Coronation Street. You're going to have tea time now. Indubitably. But how would you hate tea? I adore tea. No, you've always hated tea. I've Howard. always found tea to be completely smashing and brilliant. Jonathan, at present, I have a pot of tea sitting on my lap. I stand corrected. It is actually sitting on a doily upon my lap. Mm -hmm. Well, that, what I was actually hoping was that you'd be able to bring some confections by for the tea. Oh, I see. Why don't you help yourself to a sip right right now? Well, I'm, I'm topped up at the moment. I've, I've been well, go ahead. Well, I, I might. I just... <coughs> I think part of what you're missing about tea time, Jonathan, is beyond the taste of the tea. It is the ritual mm -hmm. of the tea. Oh, really? The pouring of the hot liquid, the preparation of the cup, the sugar... Cream, just so it's lost on you, your boorish North American.
American ways. I see. Clearly are more comfortable with your Coca-Cola and your gingered ale and your creamed soda. Mm-hmm. I would so appreciate it if you would come to join me to watch Coronation Street. And As a matter of fact, maybe I could entice you by telling you what the episode will be about. Oh, yeah, that would be very enticing. Really? Let me just, let me just move this teapot aside and I'll get my television guide and tell you... No! Howard, are you, are you okay? Yes, yes, I'm fine. I just I just poured scalding hot tea across my lap. Oh. Oh, that burn. Howard. Oh. What 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 happened to your accent? What? I don't know, John. A mess. I guess I deserve to have hot tea, stinky tea. I hate tea. I I know you do, Howard. Everybody just sounds so sophisticated, and you know, I was really quite impressed. And mm-hmm. I guess you're old friends quite the dupe, just quite the fool, always walking around trying to pretend I'm someone that I'm not. No, Howard, come on. I, 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 no, I, I, just, I wasn't crazy about this new Howard. I think I, I, I like the old one. I mean, I walked all over England talking like that. And I don't, you know, think I fooled anybody personally. A lot of people were laughing, but I wasn't making a joke, so. All right, Howard, well, um, I, I guess you better, uh, you better go dry yourself off, and I'll, oh. I'll talk to you later. Hey, John, do you... Can we still have tea time anyway? I mean, we don't have to drink the tea. I, tea actually does make me gag. Mm-hmm. But can, can you can you still bring some sweets over? Where am I going to get a hold of, uh, you know, scones and uh, crumpets and tarts? Just bring over a couple of chocolate bars and a big bag of chips. I think that would be all right. All right, Howard. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll come by when I finish work. Okay. Okay, I'll see you later. Cheerio. Howard. Right. Yeah, okay. you too. All right, Thanks. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. On Wiretap Today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich, Joshua Carpatti, and Howard Chakowitz. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, with Mira Bertwintonic and Crystal Duhame. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 1.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Or subscribe to the podcast through our website, at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. This week's selection, the sound of a British Lord's vomit landing in the Thames after an evening of too much expensive cognac. Kepla. Season's greetings. Season's greetings.